Hello, beloved. Pastor Vic Borden, Red Bridge Baptist Church, continuing our online streaming of messages while we patiently and faithfully wait for the coronavirus pandemic to subside. This past Sunday was Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week. We're in the middle of Passion Week now. It's the Sunday before the crucifixion, a week before Easter. And since the creation of the universe, the world has never known such a week of such a week of whirlwind activity, of monumental importance. In one week from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, Jesus finished his mission. Nearly 40% of the gospel writings, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, almost half, deal with the events of this final week um, before the crucifixion and resurrection. The Passion Week features the most profound example of agony and ecstasy in world history. The most pro pronounced narrative of tragedy and triumph. The consummate example of darkness and dawn. Nothing compares to it. Nothing compares to the glory of the resurrection which was preceded by the agony of the crucifixion. And I want to share a message from the first half of the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So pause your, uh, your computer, your phone for a moment and grab your Bible and let's look at John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plated a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came forth, wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, From where art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then said Pilate unto them, Speakest thou not unto me, knowest not, that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, 
And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Three primary points, if you're taking notes. And the first that I want to offer from this text and other passages in the gospel writings is that Jesus walked the avenue of suffering. He walked the avenue, the path of suffering. I failed to uh, mention the, the title of this message, The Cost of the Cross of Christ. What it cost Jesus to go to the cross. And the first thing is he walked the avenue or the pathway, the roadway of suffering. The path that Jesus took to Calvary for his crucifixion is traditionally called the Via Dolorosa, that is the way of suffering. Now just imagine the scene. It was late in the morning on a bright, clear day. We can assume that since later was the contrast with the dark storm clouds. The streets were teeming with out-of-towners filled with the activity of the Passover weekend. So there was excitement in the air. The townspeople had already condemned Jesus to die. They had already said, crucify him. And he suffered as he walked through those crowded streets bearing his own cross. How did he suffer? In what way did he walk that avenue, that pathway, that via dolorosa, the way of suffering? Well, let me offer that he first experienced physical suffering, very real physical suffering. And of course, on the cross, he actually and literally died. Well, how is it that Jesus died? Well, it, the, the treatment physically was was truly remarkable, maybe unknown uh, to, uh, to humanity before or since then. For he was whipped. He uh, had a crown of thorns pressed into his scalp. He was beaten with fists. In fact, Matthew 27 says he was beaten with a club. He was spat upon, Matthew 27 tells us. He was nailed to a wooden cross. Folks, his suffering physically was so pronounced and so profound that Isaiah 52 and verse 14 suggests that the physical appearance of Christ hardly even looked human. It was as if it was a, uh, an animal that had been thrown to the wolves and just torn up. His physical suffering was horrendous. He walked the avenue of physical suffering to pay sin's debt, to pay for your sin, to pay for my sin. My, my allegiance to him should be with my all in all. Secondly, the avenue of suffering, he had mental and emotional suffering, mental slash emotional. You see, the physical torture was intensified through the mental, emotional suffering that he experienced. In fact, in Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. It was as if 
his heart was breaking to the point of dying because he knew that he was going to be bearing sin. He was going to become the sin-cursed Lamb of God to pay the penalty for all those who would trust him. Think about the anguish of mind that he experienced. He was betrayed by Judas, his friend who had sold him out, sold him out like an animal for 30 pieces of silver. He went through these, this mockery of trials where he was falsely accused by the religious leaders. He was punished by the Roman authorities. He was turned on by the crowds. He was forsaken by the disciples. All that was going on. Whereas earlier in the week, in Matthew 21, in verse 9, the crowd was saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, they were shrieking, crucify him. And yet, Pilate, who was not God-fearing, he didn't have, a, he didn't have any advantage to confess, I don't find any fault of him, multiple times. And yet, as a coward, he still turned him over to the ravenous uh, wolves to destroy Jesus. And so he suffered mentally, emotionally. And then thirdly, he had relational suffering. The path Jesus walked produced relational suffering. You see, on the cross, he saw the, his broken-hearted mother, Mary, carrying Jesus when she was pregnant with him, said, My soul doth magnify the Lord in Luke 1. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Yet she certainly didn't feel blessed during this part of the Passion Week. For Jesus, her precious son and blessed Savior, was cruelly treated. She witnessed his suffering. And Jesus, his love, his kindness toward all, and in this situation toward his mother, committed her to the Apostle John's care. Oh, how he suffered in watching the broken heart of his own mother. And then fourthly, this way of suffering, we see in the Gospels, that there was spiritual suffering. Jesus, the sinless God-man, he, he became a curse. He became the personification of sin as the guilt of his people was laid on him. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the Savior's offering on the cross. And in Isaiah 53, verses 4, the end of verse 10, the end of verse 11, it says... Surely he had borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so the prophecy some 700, 750 years before it happened said that the righteous servant of Jehovah would become sin, would bear the curse of the penalty for sin and meet that price. To the degree 
that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us, that is, those who have believed, who knew no sin, that is, Christ, who knew no sin, that we, believers, might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So, by virtue of what Christ has done, and, and by virtue of you having accepted him, said, yes, Lord Jesus, forgive me, save me, come into my heart. By virtue of that, you've been clothed, you've been draped in his righteousness, not with any merit of your own, but by virtue of what he has done, who he is, what he has done on your behalf, if you have believed. Have you believed? Have you truly received him? Have you said, yes, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I accept you. I want that payment to be applied to my sin debt. And if you have, then you, in fact, have become a child of God. So Jesus, the God-man, bore sin on the cross. He became the focal point for the wrath of God. So that now, when the uh, fiery arrow of judgment is from God, is coming toward you, by virtue of you having believed, Jesus is standing in the way. He absorbed that condemnation, that judgment. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ hath redeemed us. He's purchased us. He's taken us out of the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So Jesus spiritually suffered. He went down that avenue of suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and mostly spiritually. For 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The second main thought I'd like to present to us about this idea of the cost of the cross of Christ is that Jesus maintained an attitude of submission. Yes, he went down the avenue of suffering, but he also, while doing that, maintained an attitude of submission. In just a short while, it will be 80 years since May 10th, 1940, when King George VI of England called upon Winston Churchill to direct the war effort against what was believed to be an imminent invasion by the Nazis. Churchill willingly accepted, and later he reflected on that day when he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. To an infinitely greater degree, Jesus accepted his assignment willingly. He went to the cross willingly. No man took his life. He laid it down of himself. He could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him but he went down that path of suffering, that way of suffering, with an attitude of submission every step of the way. It says 
In Matthew 26, 39, oh, my father, Jesus was praying. If it be possible, let this cup, this cup of judgment, of condemnation, of God's wrath, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, let that be done. An attitude of submission, willingly yielding to the will of his father. Acts 2.23 says that him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel, that is the decision, and foreknowledge of God, that is it was decreed in eternity past, and he drank that cup of suffering uh, in its entirety. Jesus was led, it says in, in John 18, not driven. He never retaliated. He didn't seek vengeance against his persecutors. He bore his own cross. What a profound attitude of submission. Oh, to have the meekness and the humility and the kindness and the self-control that Jesus demonstrated in the most extreme situation. My, how embarrassing it is when uh, I lose my temper, when I become impatient, when I'm perturbed about a particular situation. God help me, God help us, that we not ever be characterized in that way. Not only did Jesus walk down that avenue of suffering, not only did he maintain that attitude of submission. Thirdly, Jesus experienced the anguish of separation. This is the most pronounced. This is the most profound. For Jesus, always with a meek and a mild and a humble spirit, obedient to the will of God, yet he paid an infinitely, an infinitely high price when he went to the cross. He paid it, first of all, for his followers. He experienced separation from them. The crowd was saying, Hosanna, only to say, crucify him. He experienced that separation from his friends. Judas betrayed him. The apostles denied him and fled away. But he experienced the anguish of separation, and I've alluded to it just earlier, from his father, arguably the most severe anguish of the entire scenario of Passion Week. More so than the betrayal, than the arrest, than the trials, than the physical pain of crucifixion. Because up to this point, in the earthly ministry of Christ, he always addressed God as his Father. But on the cross, there an infinite separation occur, occurred. Psalm 22 and verse 1 records the prophetic question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, my shrieking, my crying out, God, why are you so far? And the answer is given in verse 3 of Psalm 22. It says, because thou art holy. You see, Christ became sin. And since the holiness of God must reject sin, it follows that there was the absolute need of the forsaking of the Son by the Father. Now, folks, we can't intellectually understand that. For the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Yet there's one God. 
in three persons. And so how does the fabric of the Godhead get torn? Um, it's a mystery. It is, it is such a profound mystery that we certainly cannot fully take it in. But in some mysterious way, God the Father rejected God the Son as Christ became the sin bearer. John MacArthur wrote, God was punishing his own sin, son. Start again. God was punishing his own son as if he, the son, had committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who would ever believe. And he did it so that he could forgive and treat those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Now, take out those pronouns. Put your own name in there. For God was punishing his own son. The Father punished Jesus, the Son, as if Jesus had committed every wicked deed done by... Put your own name in there. And he did so, Christ did so, so that he could forgive and treat those... Put your own name in there. As if, put your own name in there, they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. So Hebrews 10.14 summarizes it, where it says, For by one offering, that is of the Lord Jesus, he has perfected, that is brought to completion, forever those that are sanctified, that is those who have been made holy, made holy by virtue of having received cross. It's what's meant in verse 30 of our text in John 19 when Jesus said, it is finished. The work is done. Nothing else can be done to redeem those who believe for Christ has finished that work. That's why Hebrews 9 and verse 12 says, for by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Folks, the cross is empty. And I trust the cross, the symbol, the picture of the cross is empty in, in your church and in your home. For the work of redemption is done. It's complete. It is finished. And he went to the tomb and he rose three days later, victorious over sin and death. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, and listen to this lengthy quote. See the greatness of your sins that required so vast a sacrifice. They must be infinite in, uh, to require an infinite person to lay down his life for their removal. What a shameful thing your sin must have been. What a disgraceful, an abominable thing if Christ must be made such a shame for you. <clears throat> God, his Father, has forsaken him. God has made him a curse for us. Then, what must the curse of God have been against us? What must our sins have deserved? What thunderbolts, what coals of fire, what indignation and wrath 
from the Most High must have been our portion had not Jesus interposed, that is, stepped in between. If Jehovah did not spare his son, how little would he have spared guilty, worthless men if he had dealt with us after our sins and rewarded us according to our iniquities. Jesus was punished for sin, not his own. He was tempted at all points, yet without sin. But for mine, he was beaten, spat upon, mocked, whipped. His beard was ripped out, crown of thorns placed on his head. And all that while, he was carrying his own cross to Calvary. Oh, how he loves you and me. Beloved, man's deadliest foe, sin and death, was confronted head on by man's dearest friend, the Lord of life, the Savior, the Redeemer, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. Do you know him? You see, the cost of the cross of Christ was infinite. And he did it so that folks like you and me might have everlasting life. Our sins forgiven. Be made a child of God. Have a home in heaven that, to which we'll live eternally. But only for those who have truly repented turned from their own way, renounced their religion, renounced their wretchedness, and said, yes, Lord Jesus, save me. I receive you by faith. Has that happened in your life? If not, then let today be the day of salvation. If the Lord is stirring in your soul, turn to him in faith, even right now. Call upon the Lord Jesus to save you. Lord, I'm so thankful.